I thought what we would do at the top of this year is um, start a study of the words of Jesus and uh, just start right at the top. And uh, I usually avoid verse-by-verse studies because I like topical studies. I like to have uh, something we're talking about and then bring scripture from all areas of the Bible um, that come to bear on that topic rather than just going verse by verse. But I think there's something to spending some time in what we call the red letters. And that would be the versions of the Bible that you may have where the actual words of Jesus are printed in red ink. And so a red letter study, the words of Jesus. We don't spend enough time with Jesus in terms of reading the words. We spend a lot more time with Paul. Have you ever noticed that? There's so much more sermon content and so much more time spent on Paul. And there's a reason for that. Jesus is an Eastern man speaking an Eastern language. And on top of it all, he's a poet. He doesn't process and he doesn't communicate like we do here in the West. Paul, even though he was a Jew, was speaking to a Western audience. And he, growing up in, in Antioch, where he, where he was uh, raised, stood between. It was a very Hellenized city. So he stood between the East and the West. And so he has a way of communicating in ways that we can grasp more easily than the highly metaphor and metaphoric and elusive language of Jesus the poet speaking to an Eastern audience. Not only that, Paul also was dealing with groups of people in these nascent churches that he was establishing throughout the Eastern Mediterranean, and often doing that by surrogate, by sending people in, by letters. And so he was dealing with groups of people that needed rules, and they needed something to actually hang on to that would allow them to establish their identity and hold on to it as themselves, especially as others were coming up with different ideas and so on and so forth. Jesus is speaking heart to heart to individuals. The context is so different. You can't hang a church on Jesus' teaching. It would be pure anarchy to try to run a group by Jesus' teaching. You can do it with Paul, though, which is why the church has spent so much more time with Paul. But if we really want to be transformed from the inside out, if we want to know what Paul was all about because he was following Jesus as well, then we've got to go back to the source. And not only do we need to go back to the source, we need to go back to the real source. We need to go all the way back and consider these Aramaic idioms and these Aramaic phrases and this Aramaic message because it's very difficult for Western minds on so many levels to be able to parse that. And so that's what we're going to do. And so I'm going to get a chance to geek out a little bit, and I hope that you will enjoy that as we go through the words and we really dig down so that we can bring back out the meaning that Jesus most likely would have meant. How do we know this is Jesus' intent? Well, we can't, not from this distance and not from this gulf that stands between us. But what we can do is know to the best of our ability what these words that he spoke meant in the minds of those who first heard him, in their own language, in their context, in their worldview, in their historical setting, everything. So if we can get at least that far, what would these words have meant to a first century Judean or Galilean? Then we're as close as we can get. And when we go back into this Eastern phrasing, it changes everything. It changes so much. So that's what we're going to try to do. And we'll just kind of go through. What we're going to also do is we're going to approach the four Gospels as a harmony. 
We're going to try to combine them and get a single narrative, a single storyline. Now, for those of you who maybe haven't read the, uh, the New Testament or the Bible extensively, you know that there are four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? The first three are called the synoptics. That's a Greek word that literally means um, seen with the same eye, uh, the same view, the same perspective, basically. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are seeing the same basic storyline. In fact, Luke and Matthew, over 40% of their content comes directly from Mark, and there's a lot of connection between those three. There are still differences between them, There are still changes in the order of events and so on and so forth, and there's contradictions between them as well. And then you got John, who kind of stands all by himself, kind of like our John, stands all by himself, you know. And he's on, a, he's on a completely different trip. He's, he's doing his thing from a completely different standpoint, uh, thematic material and so on and so forth. And his, his narrative is completely different as well. To take all four of those and try to combine them into a single narrative as we are just going through this study is going to be what we're going to do to the, the, the best of our ability. And four Gospels. Why are there four Gospels? Are there really only four Gospels? Well, the truth be told, there are several dozen, many dozen Gospels that were written in the first centuries and the first generations after the crucifixion. But only four were canonized. So in our scripture, in our Bible, we only see four Gospels. But there were dozens of these that the early church fathers had to choose from. And they canonized these four by the end of the fourth century. So it took some time, you know, even though there was a tradition of these four for two to three hundred years before they were finally canonized, canonized, and the New Testament was closed. What does it mean to canonize a book? Well, it's just kind of, kind of like canonizing a saint, which the, the Catholic Church still does. If you're canonized as a saint, as a person, it doesn't mean that those who are canonized are the only ones that are in heaven, the only ones approved by God. It means that those are the only ones we know are in heaven. There's many more, of course, but these are the ones that we know because they have passed a certain bar. Canon in Greek means a standard or a measuring rod. So if it's past that measuring rod that they set, then they can say, it's good. So to canonize a book is the same thing. They're not saying these are the only books. These 27 books of the, of the uh, New Testament, these 39 books of the Old Testament are the only books that God has inspired, that are written according to God's inspiration. But they're saying these are the ones we know. And how did they choose? I mean, you can say it's kind of arbitrary. But the truth of the matter is what they were doing was considering the books that were already widely being released to the people. And when you say that, you've got to realize there is no printing press here. Every single manuscript had to be handwritten, which meant that it was extremely expensive and difficult to make a book. Most people didn't even read or write, right? And so if you had a book that was being rewritten over and over again, recopied over and over again, it meant a lot to the people and a lot to the communities. There were five major centers of, of Christianity in the ancient world. And uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Byzantium, which later became Constantinople, and of course Rome. And if these books were being circulated throughout the entire world of Christianity, of Christendom, they knew that they were moving the people's hearts. They were actually inspiring the people. They were books that they wanted 
more and more. And so they kept copying them. So that was a huge way that they looked at the books. Which are the ones that are getting copied the most? Which are the ones that are ubiquitous throughout the the centers of Christianity? And secondly, very important, does it have apostolic authorship as much as they could tell? Was it written by one of the apostles, the original authorities of the church? And many of the books that barely squeaked by and those that didn't get in, didn't get in because of this authorship issue. And the third issue was, does it conform with what was becoming orthodox belief in the church by the third and fourth centuries? So those are the three main ways that canonization took place. There's some surprising books that almost didn't get in, like Revelation, like second and third Peter, second and third John, you know, and, and Jude and some of those because, and Hebrews almost didn't get in because they couldn't really verify authorship. Even today, we really don't know who wrote Hebrews, for instance. You know, it's usually attributed to Paul, but we don't really know. And so this is the way that these four Gospels became the canon of the New Testament, the four Gospels. But as we say, there were many more. These are the ones that the church could say really are inspired by God and are inspiring people as they go forward. Not only that, there needed to be four. Four is a highly symbolic number to the church and also to the Hebrews that it started and actually wrote our scriptures. The number four is, in Hebrew numerology, is the number of the earth, and it has to do with the four cardinal directions. In fact, the ancient symbol of the earth is a circle with a, with a cross inside of it, giving you north, south, east, and west, the four cardinal directions. And so the fourness of the gospel meant that you were seeing something with a complete view, 360 degrees, north, south, east, and west, all of it. And not only that, it also corresponded with the four fixed signs of the zodiac. Now, why would I be bringing up the zodiac in a Christian context? Because most of you have probably been told that, you know, astrology is of the devil, right? But the ancients used astrology assiduously, and it was part of their culture. It was a part of the way that they understood their world. And believe it or not, astrology is in the Bible. The term is matzorot, matzorot, something like that, matzorot. It's a word that I have, one scholar said actually originally meant zoo, which I think is kind of cool. I don't know if it's true or not. But what it does mean is a constellation, and specifically the constellations of the zodiac. Now, y'all, do y'all know what the zodiac is? Let me take the, take the mystery out of it from an astronomical point of view, not an astrological point of view. But how many time I've got? Real quickly, if you understand the, or, or just imagine that our Earth and our solar system is in the center of a gigantic beach ball, all right? And on the inside surface of that beach ball are fixed all of the stars that we can see at night. Because right? the stars don't move, really. They, they do, but not in human time. So inside, that's called the celestial sphere. So we're inside this beach ball, and we're looking at all these stars. All the planets revolve around the sun in the same plane, all right? as if like marbles on a table. If you were to take that plane and extend it out until it touched the celestial sphere, the inside of the beach ball, it would scribe a line around that, Right? On that line are 12 recognized constellations equally spaced all the way around 360 degrees. Those are the constellations that we call the zodiac. 
if you are on the earth and you're looking at the sun, there is going to be a constellation directly behind it that's one of those 12, right? And each month as the earth revolves around the sun, it moves so that you're seeing a different constellation behind the sun. But when you're looking at the sun, you can't see any stars at all, right? Well, that's why you get up early in the morning and you see what constellation the sun rises into as you look east. And they figured out that as they looked at the lunar cycle, as a moon went through its cycle, the sun would rise into a different constellation each time the moon went through its cycle. This was the ancient timekeeping method. This is, they depended on this for their very survival. How to know where they were in the year? Why were all these megalithic structures created so that we could keep track of that? They could keep track of this. They knew where they were in the year. They knew how to plant. These were vital. And each one of the constellations was imagined to draw a picture of a different figure. And those became the signs of the constellations of the zodiac. Those are woven into our scriptures as well. Genesis 1.14 says that the signs, the lights in the sky were made for signs and for seasons. And so we see that. Job is the only book that has mention of the Matsarov, but it's in there at least. But this is woven into it, and they understood this. It was so central to their culture, so central to their survival, that they saw the stars as influencing what happened on Earth. Not individually. It wasn't until the Greeks came and actually created the horoscope, which means the, to look at the hour, look at the hour of your birth, that astrology came down to the personal level. For the ancients, well, the Greeks were ancient too, for the ancient Hebrews, it was macro. It was the movement of, of large populations. It was the movement of nations and the movement of kings as above, so below. And so these were also part of the tradition. And so right now, as we look at the four Gospels, there are four fixed signs of the zodiac, those signs that are in the center of each of the four seasons, again, giving us a north, south, east, and west view. And that's Aquarius, Leo, Taurus, and Scorpio. Those are the four fixed signs. Now, here's where it starts to get interesting with the four Gospels. The, sign, the, the, the uh, symbol for Aquarius is, or Aquarius is the man. Leo is the lion. Taurus is the ox or the bull. And originally, in the ancient times, Scorpio was an eagle, not a scorpion. Later, it moved into a serpent and into a scorpion. But in, for the ancient Hebrews, we had the man, the lion, the ox, and the eagle. There were four major tribes of, of, of uh, Israel. And those four major tribes were Reuben, Judah, Ephraim, and Dan. The sign for Reuben was the man. The sign for Judah was the lion. The sign for Ephraim was the ox, and the sign for Dan was the eagle. And they carried those standards as they moved. And when they camped, they would all camp around the sanctuary, around the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And they would camp in this way. Reuben to the south with two other tribes underneath him. Judah to the east with two other tribes. Ephraim to the west, Ephraim to the west, and Dan to the north. All around the tabernacle. Again, giving a 360 view. The cherubim that are mentioned in Ezekiel and, and Revelation have four faces, a man, an ox, an eagle, and a lion. Also symbol, symbolic of seeing everywhere in every direction as they protect the throne of God. And so the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, also conform to this as well. Matthew is the man. 
Mark is the lion, Luke is the ox, and John is the eagle. If you have some really old Bibles, at the beginning of each gospel, you'll see that picture. There'll be a man at the, at the head of, uh, on the first page of Matthew, a lion, an ox, and an eagle in all those four gospels. Not only that, each gospel is said to look at Jesus in a different way. Matthew looks at Jesus as a man, and that's the primary way that Jesus is understood. Mark looks at him like a king, and of course the king is the lion. Luke looks at Jesus as a servant, right? which is the ox, the servant. And then John looks at Jesus from a spiritual point of view, which is the eagle. These four are also called the four excellencies. Man is the highest order of all living things. And the, the lion is the highest order of all wild animals. The ox is the highest of the domesticated animals. And the eagle is the highest of the birds that fly. And so once again, all of this symbolism, there was a reason that there needed to be four. And there's a reason that these four were brought into the symbolism of the time so that we understood that these four were giving us a complete and full look at Jesus' life, his teaching, and his ministry from all of these perspectives, seeing all sides of Jesus. And so that's what we want to do as we go through this is to try to combine all four of these into one narrative as much as we possibly can. Now, I want to begin at a good starting point, but I'm not going to begin at the beginning. <laughs> uh, it's uh, kind of like, like a movie that starts kind of in media rest. You know, in the middle of things, we're going to kind of do that just, just a little bit. We're going to start, start at Mark 1, and, uh, and our target verse is going to be Mark 1.15. By this time, already much has happened in Jesus' life. There are already has been the birth narratives that we find in Matthew and Luke. There's the genealogies that we also find in Matthew and Luke. There's the childhood stories that we mostly find in Matthew and Luke. And there's a miracle at Cana. That's already happened by this time because that happened before Jesus' public ministry actually got started. And we're going to pick up some of this later. Right now, what we want to do is focus on Jesus' words and on his sayings. Mark 1.15 represents the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And there are two parts of Mark 1.15, part A and part B. The A part is a proclamation that he makes, and then the B part is an appeal that he makes to all of us. And if we don't understand the terms of this one line verse, there'll be seven key terms that we need to understand. We're going to be forever lost, not here about this one verse, but about everything that Jesus says. Because the key to understanding Jesus' message is right here in Mark 1.15. Let's read it. And let's get some context. So let's start right at, at Mark 1.1, and we'll read through verse 15. So Mark begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Sounds good, right? Mmm. 
And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So there's our Mark 1.15. There's the proclamation. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And here's the appeal. Repent and believe the gospel. So this opening section of the gospel of Mark the gospel that's going to see Jesus as king, the gospel that is represented by the lion, introduces John's ministry first, right? John was there to prepare the way for the Mashiach, prepare the way for the one who was going to change the fortunes of Israel. Now, John was probably an Essene, one of the four major philosophies of ancient Judea before the temple fell, which means that he was a purist. He probably was one of those that now we look at as having created the Dead Sea Scrolls for us and and lived out in desert communities and then came back in order to teach. So he was a hardliner. He was hard right. You know, they were waiting. They were exiting from everything that was going on that they saw as profane in in Judea and in Jerusalem and in their country, waiting for everyone to blow themselves up and then they would come back and reoccupy the land. That was probably where John was coming from. And so, yeah, he's eating locusts and honey and all of that weird stuff, the camel's hair. This is also about, though, recognizing that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of the Mashiach. And thinking about this for a second, Jesus may not have even realized this yet himself as he approached his cousin. He was drawn to the river. He was drawn to his cousin to be baptized. He was being drawn out of whatever life he had as his father's son, as the head of his family, because most likely Joseph was already dead by this time. Jesus traditionally is around 30 at this point. John recognizes him. Did Jesus? Well, really never know. But we do know that after he's baptized, he's immediately impelled, and that's a real forceful word in the Greek, impelled to go out into the wilderness and to go through this difficult time where he is pushed to exhaustion. He is tempted in the three symbolic ways that all of us have got to work through. Our need for power, our need for, to be spectacular and to be uh, approved, and our need to be relevant, as Henry Nouwen likes to put it. But all the basic instinctual drives and obsessive and compulsive impulses that we have, Jesus purged through always coming back to scripture, always coming back to the knowledge of his father. And when he emerges from that time, and I guarantee you it was more than 40 days, there are 18 unaccounted years in Jesus' life. Who knows how long it really was? But it was a long time. And when he comes out, he can say that I and the father are one. He knows himself at that point. 
But at the time that he comes back, John is already incarcerated. He's already in prison, and he never gets out, right? You know the end of John. He is executed for the temerity to actually stand up to a king, speaking truth to power. So he never sees Jesus in the full flower of his ministry. He does send his emissaries out to ask if he's really the expected one, which was the term that the Essenes used for the Mashiach, because he wasn't sure anymore. Jesus wasn't working the way he expected him to work, politically and with power, to throw the Romans out and reestablish the sovereignty of Israel. But Jesus comes back in the way that he comes back. He appears in Galilee and he's preaching. And he comes to to his people with this proclamation and this appeal. And it's very misleading from an English point of view as we read it. It's slightly better in the Greek, but the Aramaic is what brings back the essential message of what Jesus is trying to get across here. So we're going to look at the Aramaic, but we're also going to look at the Greek because the two together have an interesting way of being able to build upon each other and help us get to the understanding of these seven key terms. So once again, Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's take a look at each one of these seven key terms in here. And the first one is a time. Time is fulfilled. So time in Aramaic, the word is zavna. It means time, but it can mean a period of time. And it can mean a season. So it's kind of open-ended. It, it kind of moves. It's not just a specific time that we would look at a clock right now, what time it is. But it can be a season. It can be some kind of interval within the time. In Greek, there are two words for time. One is kairos and the other is chronos. And there's a difference between the two. Chronos is chronological time. It's sequential time, like we normally think of time running around the face of a clock. It's also quantitative. You can have an amount of time when you're speaking of chronos. That's not the word that is used here in Mark 1.15. The word used is kairos. Kairos is a little bit more squishy, right? It's the time in between events, right? It's the time in between markers. If you think of it musically, you have the notes that are written. Those are the notes you need to play in a certain sequence in time. But between the notes, you have rests. And the rests have to be played just as much as you play the notes or everything falls apart. Kairos is kind of like the rests in the music. It's the time between time, right? Between times. It's a moment of indeterminate time in which something special happens. In other words, Kairos is qualitative, It's a quality of time more than it is a quantity of time. Now, zavna in in Aramaic, if we really dig down into the roots, is speaking about a passing instant when an opening happens, which must be driven through. It's like a moment when a door opens, a realization occurs, epiphany of some sort. And we must, must drive through that with some force with some, right, some energy behind it, if the success is to be achieved, if we're going to go where the door is leading. It's kind of like Selah, which we've talked about in here so much. Selah means prayer in Aramaic. Selah is this kind of breathless, anticipatory moment of realization. It's the time right before something happens, and we can feel it. 
It gives us this energy. It gives us a spiritual awareness, aliveness, if you will. But regardless, whether you're looking at Kairos or whether you're looking at Zabna, either way, the focus is going to be on the person. The focus is going to be on you as being ready to be able to move into this moment. It's an active way of looking at time. It's not about letting a clock run out until the time is at hand. It's not from outside in, it's from inside out. If we look at it the other way, where it's just a time that we're waiting for, that's passive. We're waiting for something to happen. What's happening here is the time when we are ready to see what is already there, then the change occurs. I'm hoping that makes sense. The two, the differences between these ideas of time. It's active and the focus is on us. What you will find is that the focus is always on us. God has already done everything that God can do, will do, would ever do. Everything is laid out for us. It's all about us at this point. God isn't withholding anything. We're not waiting for a clock to run out for something to not be withheld anymore. It's all here. But when will we be ready to lean into it? That's the idea of time here. And the time is fulfilled. Okay? Lech shalom in, in the Aramaic. Which means completed. It means delivered. Now, the Greek, pleroo, means to carry into effect or to realize. If you put the two together, what you're getting is the idea that the waiting is over. It's not at hand. It's not almost here and we're waiting for it to arrive. The waiting is over. In the sense of, if you're still waiting for something, that's on you. Right? Everything has been done. It's all here. So if you're still waiting, then you haven't gotten to the place where you're ready to realize that it's already here. And what is it that the waiting is over for. Well, it's the kingdom of God. Malkutha delacha in Aramaic. Basileia in the Greek. Both of these words, Malkutha in the Aramaic and Basileia in the Greek, do not refer to a territory, a place of a kingdom. What they're referring to are the principles by which the king rules. Or the queen. It can be a queen, right? What are those principles? The closest English word we have is a reign. R-E-I-G-N, in the reign of the king. How do they operate? What is the, 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 the total environment that they create with their people in their kingdom? That's the idea of kingdom here. The reign of unity. Alaha literally can mean unity. Elohim in the Hebrew, Alaha in Aramaic. So this reign of unity. What are the principles by which God reigns and rules? It's unity, it's oneness, it's connection, it's love, of course. And so that is going to be the operation of his kingdom. But it's not just about a territory. It's not a place you can go. It's an attitude that you enter into. And if we don't get the idea of kingdom solidly, we're going to miss everything that Jesus is talking about. I want to read you just a couple of paragraphs from The Fifth Way, the book I wrote, to try to get across how central this is to understand kingdom because kingdom is so central to Jesus. In what way is a sailor a sailor without a ship? A ship is the framework, the little world within which everything it means to be a sailor is acted out. What is a baseball player without bat and ball and glove? 
Those items are at once both the very image of the game itself and the means by which it is made possible. And what is an astronomer without a telescope, without the lens through which the object of study can be apprehended at all? Yeshua's kingdom is all of these. It is the framework, the world in which everything it means to be a child of God is lived out. It is both the image of and the process by which this life in God is made possible. And it is the lens through which that life can be viewed, understood, and apprehended. And it is at least one thing more. As the container into which Yeshua pours all the content of his teaching, the kingdom of heaven is the context, the parameters within which all Yeshua's sayings must be understood. Just as the only thing separating a sailor from a drowning man is the deck of his ship, the only thing separating us from gross misunderstanding of Yeshua's message is a standing upon and within the true concept of kingdom. It will be for us as the deck of our ship, the bat in our hands, the scope at our eye. Nothing Yeshua says can be understood apart from his concept of kingdom because everything he said was said within the context of kingdom. This is how important we need to understand. And we need to understand that kingdom isn't a place we go. And most importantly, we need to understand that kingdom is not heaven of the next life because as soon as we think that, guess what? We're waiting for something again. We're waiting for the moment of our death. We're waiting for this transition into something else. And then that becomes the reward. And this life just becomes a waiting period to get to that reward. And maybe keeping our contract with God intact and not breaking it so that we can get to that reward. Everything falls apart that Jesus is trying to talk about. If we think of it in that way, we need to realize the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. The waiting is over. And the kingdom is the quality of life that we can enjoy, that we can experience right here and right now when we, like Jesus, can say that I and the Father are one. When our values become God's values. When we see the world as God sees the world. As one thing. Connected. Integrated. All of that. If we allow kingdom to be something outside of ourselves, then we're always waiting for the outside to come in. But if kingdom is already here, then we arrive into it and actually become it from inside out. Again, kingdom is quality, not quantity. A quality of life, perceiving, seeing, awareness, and presence. And this kingdom, as it's translated in English here, is at hand. But we've got to rethink that as well. Engizo, the Greek word there, means to come near or it's almost time. But the Aramaic word, meta, is to arrive or reach or attain. In other words, it's a done deal. We're already there, right? And not only that, if you look at engizo, the Greek word, you see that it's in perfect tense. Perfect tense in Greek is a past action, a past action with continuing effects in the presence. So the idea here is that the kingdom has already arrived. The kingdom is here now, already here and now. The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. Repent, he says. Here we go into the appeal. Repent. Metano eo in Greek. 
means to change your mind, to think differently about something, to reconsider. But notice it's all about thought. It's about changing the mind. Tab in Aramaic means to return, to answer, to vomit, interestingly, right? And to repent. But it's about a change of direction. It's about action, not just thought. But we can put the both together because to repent is to change the way we think so that we can change the way we act, you know? And we can change the way we act so that we can change the way we think. You know, do you live your... your uh, live into different thinking or do you think into different living? You know, we can go back and forth between that, but the idea is that we need to do both. And so repenting is a change of direction. He says, repent and believe. Believe, pistio in Greek, is to have faith, to believe, to commit, but also to trust. And hymenuta in Aramaic is the confidence or the firmness or the integrity of trust. Trust is the bottom line for both the Greek and the Aramaic behind our English believe. Wherever you see believe in the New Testament, mentally substitute trust, and you're getting closer to the idea here. Belief can just be a mental agreement that you make with yourself or agree with the group that you happen to be in, and it changes nothing in terms of your real life. But when you have gotten to trust the only reason you got to trust is because you've experienced the trustworthiness of something. Trust is experiential. You can't will it into existence. You can't just think it and, and then trust. You have to experience something, and repeatedly so. How long did it take you to trust another person with your car keys? Will you ever trust anybody with your car keys? Right? But if you have, it's because you have given them those car keys several times and your car came back. Nice. That's the way we end up trusting. So believe always has the valence of trust, which means it always is experiential. Something has happened in your life to allow you to experience this trustworthiness. And we're supposed to be trusting what? The gospel, sebarta in Aramaic, which means hope. It means, again, to consider, to endure, to preach or declare. But look at those words, how they all are about action. They're all about things that are happening repeatedly over time. Confidence, firmness, integrity, hope, consider, endure, preach. And then euangelion in Greek, good tidings are a message, so it's more of a proclamation. Brian Stoffergen, who is a, a, a scholar, he has an interesting way of putting this. He says that this gospel is a way of living life. It's something that is proclaimed, but it's not about doctrine. It's not about teaching that is to be studied. It's a real-time performance like music. It's more like that, like dance, that we experience as it unfolds. And we don't have a sense of how it's going to unfold. We have to just wait note by note and movement by movement to capture the whole thing. Only then... In moment, in, move, in movement, and in motion, does it, can it be said to actually exist? It doesn't exist just in our mind as a thought. It exists as it's unfolding in motion. Frank Herbert in the in Dune, his, his famous novel, has a great line where he said, "A process cannot be understood by stopping it. You have to enter the process, join it, 
and flow with it to understand what it's all about. See, gospel's like that. It's a moving, living, breathing process that we have to enter and flow into if we're ever going to trust it. So it's something to be proclaimed, but it's also something to be believed, but not with your head, but with your life choices. Are you willing to risk living and acting as if this gospel is actually true? Even before that you know it is. Even before you've experienced the trustworthiness of it all. Are you willing to do that? That's the trust part. And then it's also something that motivates. It creates a response in us. It's not passive. It's not just an idea. Why do we call this place the effect? Because there has to be an effect to God's love. There has to be an effect to the gospel in our lives if it has in any way become true for us. It's not enough to ask what you believe. You need to ask what difference it makes that you believe. What has changed? What is the effect? Has the gospel motivated you into some kind of difference? See, this is the appeal that Jesus is making in the back end of Mark 1.15 to repent, change direction, and believe that is trust, both present tense imperatives, which imply a continual and repeated action. Do you think that we repent once? You think that we believe, trust once? The idea here is that we keep on changing direction. We keep on refining our direction. We keep on experiencing more and more about the trustworthiness of our God, the trustworthiness of this good news, that there is no bad news, that God's love is all that over and over. It's an ongoing lifestyle that we curate, if you want to look at it that way. And truthfully, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about only exists as long and for as long as we are keeping on in this way. We are the kingdom. What did Jesus say? He says, don't hinder the children from coming to me. Let them come, for such as these are the kingdom. We don't possess the kingdom. We don't even enter the kingdom. We become the kingdom as we keep keeping on with the choices that we are making as if the gospel message is true. If I were to paraphrase, and I'm going to, Mark 1.15, it's going to take me a whole paragraph. And uh, based on everything that we've said to try to reframe these seven key terms in this one short line of Jesus, let's try this. The waiting is over. God's presence is fully formed right here and right now. The door is wide open for you to step through into the very life that God lives each and every moment. Whatever direction you're going, stop and turn this way through this door. Experience this good news yourself. Remain hopefully hopefully steadfast and happily committed until you trust that the way is sure. Not going to get into any Bibles anytime soon, but this is just the way I'm understanding it. In other words, the gospel is epic, the way that we've been talking about epic for years here. Experiential, 
participatory, image-based, and communal. The exact opposite of what we do as modern Westerners. You know, we're not experiential. You know, we're, we're, we're always proposing some sort of truth mentally. You know, we're not experiential. We're representational. What I'm doing right now is representing something to you and you're receiving it. But eventually we need to experience it. We're word-based as opposed to image-based, although that is really changing in our, in our culture, right? And then finally communal as opposed to individualistic. Westerners are adamantly individualistic. But the opposite of all that is epic. And the reason that epic even came into my attention is that Leonard Sweet was talking about our younger generations are now processing information epically. You give a kid a cell phone, is he going to go look for the manual? Of course not. They're just going to start punching. They're going to figure it out because it's experiential. It's participatory. Go to a concert. The audience is as much of the concert as the wh whoever's on stage. You know, They're dancing and pushing and doing all the things that they do. Image-based, of course, everything is image-based now. Words are out the door uh, to our younger generations. And, of course, communal as well. It might be electronically, but they're communal. But the light for me really went on when I realized that the ancients who wrote our scriptures were epic too. Experiential, participatory, image-based, and communal. And the scriptures that they wrote and the way they communicated and what we have here preserved for us in our Bible and as gospel is epic as well. The kingdom is epic because kingdom must be experienced in order to be trusted. And of course, the flip side of that, it must be trusted in order to be experienced. And you can say, well, that's a catch-22. How am I supposed to do that? The catch-22 is resolved when we finally stop thinking. It's a catch-22 in our minds, but it's not a catch-22 in our actions because as soon as we just start taking the first steps, as soon as we're willing to risk moving in a direction and treating this gospel as if it's already true, we will find out that it is. So the kingdom must be experienced to be trusted, but trusted enough to be experienced. We need to trust the words that Jesus is telling us, trust that he is who he says he is, in order to be willing to take those first frightening steps into the unknown. The older I get, the more I end up being focused on meaning and purpose. Maybe more focused on meaning as purpose. Maybe that's a good way to put it. Because with less time I see before me, you know, more time behind than in front, I'm finding that life is much more about how than what. It's much more about how I live, how I conduct myself, the choices I make, than what I say I believe, or any kind of intellectual property collected around what I say I believe. Meaningful moments are becoming much more important to me than the outcome of those moments. The outcome becomes more and more irrelevant if the moments leading to them have meaning. If the moments leading to them built community, even if we didn't build what we wanted to build, we built community in the process, that's a good thing. You remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? I know, it's a movie you only want to see once, especially the first 20 minutes, right? But the, the premise of it was is that um, um, four brothers were all enlisted and were deployed in World War II, and three of them were killed in, in succession. And so there was a rule in the army that if only one sibling was left, that they had to be brought back in. Well, 
Private Ryan had paratrooped behind enemy lines at the Normandy invasion, and a squad of eight um, rangers, army rangers, were sent in to find him and extract him and bring him back out. And of course, in the process, all eight of those rangers were killed, but they did bring out Private Ryan. So think about that for a second. Eight lives lost to save one. Is that worth it? Is that a good choice? The touching end of that movie is the elderly Private Ryan going back to Normandy and standing at Captain Miller's headstone and saying, I hope that I was worth it for this sacrifice. When we ask questions like that, we need to ask ourselves, what are we saving our lives for? When we think about saving for a certain outcome or for this or for that, what are we saving our lives for? Because truthfully, it is all now. Everything is now. There is no other thing than what is happening right now. And the choices that we make right now to be compassionate, to be loving, to, to be saving, all exist now. The outcome is not important. It's the choice we make now that's important. Our purpose is only and ever going to exist in motion, not theoretically, not in our heads. And meaning is only and ever going to exist in the moment, the moment that we're in right now. There is no greater purpose than kingdom. And there is no greater meaning than right now. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Humans in general, and especially us modern Westerners, spend all of our time abstractly, theoretically, out there in the future somewhere, valuing an outcome over the process and the moments and the nowness that will get us there. Jesus is trying to turn that on his head. If you ever want to experience your God, if you ever want to find this quality of life that I have found, knowing that I and my Father are one, you're going to have to live here and now. There is no other space or place to be. And once you get that, you get the good news. Everything is available here and now, and you'll finally understand that. Repent and believe the gospel. The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for a news so good that none of us can believe it. But because we can't believe it, help us to take those first tentative steps in the direction that your son is showing us. If we can't overcome our own fears, if we can't logically find our way to wrap our minds around this good news, help us to simply trust the source. Help us to simply trust Jesus that if he could do this, we can do this because if for no other reason, he said we could. Help us to do that, Lord. Take those steps right over our fears to get to the first bit 
of trustworthiness that can bolster us and move us on to the next and the next and the next until we realize we had nothing to fear at all in the first place. Thank you, Father. We love you. Thank you for loving us to this amazing extent. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.